From the EPR Creation Studio, this is another off-season edition of the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. As always, this podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, bringing you the best of internet marketing and website development for an affordable price. By Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. You need to talk to Louis if you've got any real estate needs in the greater Jacksonville area. And Shenandoah Newsma of ShenRealEstate.com in the Research Triangle area of North Carolina. And finally, by Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida. And also, uh, we're going to be starting to move around in terms of some other uh, advertising opportunities here in the near future. So uh, it's one of those things. Been a lot of There's been a lot of work on the back end of late as we're uh, trying to get this podcast modernized a little bit after... What this is season eleven. This is eleven years of doing this podcast, and uh, it's it's time to uh, to modernize a little bit in the wake of finally finishing my second book and getting a few other things done. Try to get things moving forward a little bit more on this front uh, after having had to backburner this for a good bit. So, yeah, going to be good to be able to do that. So, have some other sponsors coming your way in the nearish future. In any case, we are going to do another mailbag episode. The last mailbag episode, I went through quite a bit. And in this one, uh, I'm going through a lot of the material that I could not get to on that one. And there's still material I'm not going to be covering. I'm not going to be able to get to everything in this one either. So I've got another mailbag, mailbag issue coming a little bit after that or mailbag episode coming after that. And then the other thing is I've got, I've been asked to do some, uh, some grades of the roster as well. And that's something I had planned. But one of the other questions that came in had to do with uh, doing impact grades on the transfer portal departures off of the 2022 Florida state roster. So the, the players at Florida state lost, how much of an impact will that have as well? And that's not exactly a, uh, a question and answer uh, or a, a, a mailbag episode, but that's something else that I'm going to be covering here in the near future. So yeah, been working through, uh, getting some of this stuff ready to go. Got a lot more, uh, mailbag stuff to do before we get into the final meet of the summer. But, uh, July, I'm going to be doing some June and July. I'm going to be doing some, uh, some scouting stuff looking forward, uh, at the Florida state roster for 2023 and, and, and beyond. So, all that said, let's go ahead and get to the some of the remainder, not the entire remainder, of the mailbag that has come in, and it has been extensive over the last couple months. So uh, sorry I've not gotten to everybody's questions just yet, and you know there's some questions I just won't be able to get to, but uh, doing the best I can there. So let's go ahead and get started. So the next question that I'd gotten, that where I left off the last one, was what do you think about Jeremiah Byers starting as a right tackle? I think he's a guard in the NFL. Does Byers have quick enough feet to go against the top speed rushers in the ACC? This is a great question. Uh, and it's something that uh, I spent a good bit of time looking at when I was working through uh, the spring game and, and so on. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be going back and looking at looking more at that when I do more uh, formal scouting reports, something that I've wanted to do uh, as I've done for some other other uh, contexts. I've wanted to do that for Florida State the last couple of years. Going to be able to finally do that this summer. So I'm going to be going back and I'll revise this a little bit as as we move forward. But all in all, I, I agree. I think I, I see buyers as 
best at the guard position. Uh, I think ideally he starts there. I think that's where Florida State would like him to be. But with what I've seen of him, I think he does have quick enough feet to play right tackle and even left tackle in a pinch in the ACC. I think he's good enough to do it. So do I think he would be, you know, an all ACC level tackle or something like that? I, I don't I don't think he's quite there, but I think he, he again, I think he could play that position and be above replacement level. I'll just say that at the ACC level at, at the tackle position. So if Florida State has to play him at tackle this year, they're still going to be OK. That's that's a pretty good option to have. I don't think there's. I don't know, I'm not sure there's anybody in the ACC that has a better third option at tackle than Byers. I'm not sure that I'm trying to think through the list. I don't I don't know that there's a better that there is a better number 3 offensive tackle in the ACC than what Byers would be. So, so yeah, you you feel pretty comfortable about that. But I think going into next year, I think Florida State would like Bless Harris and Robert Scott to be their tackles. I think that that would be kind of the ideal situation. And if it were me, I'd be looking at Bless Harris at left tackle and Robert Scott moving back to right tackle. I think that's your ideal lineup with Harris being your little bit quicker, a little bit more fluid tackle. And I think he, he could be, I think Harris could be an all ACC level tackle. I think he's, he's got a chance. He looked really good in the spring game to my eye and he's still got more growth to do over the summer. He's going to get stronger and he's getting further and further removed from that injury. So he's only going to get better. And then of course you got Darius Washington as another option out there uh, who could play tackle as well. And I'm not sure that, that Washington wouldn't be the guy that they would put outside at right tackle before they would put buyers there. I mean, and, and that's the, that's the question. Is he actually a better third option with buyers staying in at, at guard but they've got some flexibility in the offensive line there. So, so yeah, I, I think that's, that's where you, where you have it. So the next question is related to this. What do you think the starting offensive line will be against LSU if everyone is healthy? Do you think Julian Armella starts? So this is what I have from left to right. Based on what I've seen, this is, this is, this is how I would have it. And I think this is where Florida State's staff at this point most likely, if you if you got truth serum and put him in there, this is probably where things would be right now. And that's Bless Harris at left tackle. And then either Darius Washington or Casey Roddick at left guard. And then either Roddick or Maurice Smith at center. And then Byers at right guard and Robert Scott at right tackle. I think that would be if you put truth serum into the into the Florida State offensive staffs. Uh, bodies and ask them what they think, what they're hoping for, what where they would like it to be. It would be something like that. Now, the real question there is essentially what the best option at center is. That that's that's you're trying to get your best five on the field. That's that's the key here. And the question is whether or not Washington at left guard and Roddick at center is a better combination than Roddick at left guard and Smith at center. That's that's really the question. And I think you'll see some rotation there. But that's really the question. If I had to guess today, I would guess that they would actually prefer Washington at guard and Roddick at center. But I think there's also that they also want to make sure that everybody's happy. 
as much as possible. And it may actually be best in terms of ensuring that everybody is is where they need to be to make sure that Smith is starting at center and Roddick at, at guard and then just rotating from there. I mean, that's a possibility. It's a possibility. But that's where I would have things. Now, I think you're going to see, like I said, some rotation here, especially in the inside. Because Dimitri Emanuel, I mean, he's a, he's a guy that was, he graded out pretty well last year at the right guard spot. And all of a sudden, he's key backup. I, I do not see Dimitri Emanuel as a starter this year. Which, again, that, that's wild. I mean, that guy, is, he, he was pretty good last year. But I don't think he starts this year. And I think on the interior, you have Emmanuel, Washington, Smith, Roddick, and Keandre Jones, who has two years, by the way, remember. Those, those four guys, or is that five? Let's see, Emmanuel, Smith, Washington, Roddick, and Jones. That's five guys that I see as rotating on the interior. Guys that are going to play on the interior and I think those are guys that are going to play. I think Keandre Jones may be the odd man out right now as he continues to work into, into shape a little bit and all of that. But I think he'll play too. But you get those five guys rotating over the course of, of, of each game. And to me, the core backup tackles are Darius Washington and, and Jeremiah Byers. So if one of the tackles goes down, if Bless Harris or Robert Scott goes down, I think... In non-garbage time, let's say something happens against LSU, knock on wood, you know, whatever, throw some salt over your shoulder, but don't hit sea bass, whatever. Um, if somebody, if one of the tackles went down in an LSU situation or a game where you, you really need to make sure that, that you're competing at the highest level, I think, let's say Bless Harris went down, you'd have Robert Scott move over to left tackle. And again, this is presuming my current lineup. You have Robert Scott move over to left tackle and Darius Washington kick out to right guard. And then you have Smith and Roddick on the field. And I think that's your best five where you'd go Harris, Roddick, Smith, Byers, and then Darius Washington. I think that'd be your starting lineup. If Scott got hurt again, you slide Washington in at right tackle and you do the same thing, same lineup. So I think that's where you are now on the depth chart. <laughs> I think Julian Armella is going to be the number two left tackle. I do not see Julian Armella as a, as a starter this year. Uh, I think he's a guy that is not really in the core rotation this year. I think he's still a year away from that, but I think he's a guy that's going to get his feet wet in, in a lot of garbage time reps. So, you, you know, second half, you get mid third quarter, you're up by 30, Julian Armella gets a quarter and a half of, of action in those contexts as he's prepping for next year. And that's not where you're rotating your core seven or eight in the, in the ballgame. You know, your core eight, nine guys. And I think the core guys that are going to be on the field in crunch time. So these are guys that are going to rotate when the game is still in doubt are going to be Bless Harris, Robert Scott, Darius Washington, Casey Roddick. Maurice Smith, Jeremiah Byers, and Demetri Emanuel. Those are your core. I think that's your core. And you can, you might add Keandre Jones in there, maybe, as part of that core, maybe. But I think that's your core. 
And then your backups, your guys that are truly backups that are not really part of that core rotation that are not playing, uh, that are not rotating in when the game is in doubt. I think the next guys on the list are Julian Armella, Jalen Early, Quayshon Sapp. Probably again, Keandre Jones is kind of on the cusp there, you know, between those. And then I think there's a, an open spot there to determine who that next guy is. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was actually Andre Otto, who I, I think he's going to be really good. And I think Andre Otto is a guy who could play all five positions. I mean, I talked about this in the recruiting situation. I think he's a guy that could play all five positions in the offensive line. I think long term, he, he probably projects best at center. But he could play right tackle. He could play either of the guard positions. He could even play left in, the, in a pinch. I don't think he's a natural left. But I think that's where you where you wind up. And those guys are all in position to step in and be part of the core rotation next year. Because again, bless Harris, this is his last year. Casey Roddick, this is his last year. Jeremiah Byers, with a really good year, could potentially move on. I don't think he will. But, you know, Dimitri Emanuel, this is his last year. So you're losing three guys at least out of your core rotation for next year, including two starters. And now you're going to slot in some of those guys from the next group. And that's what this year is about. Now, this is the key. Next year is where Armella gets into that core rotation. But this is the important thing for where Florida State is right now as a program. Florida State has gotten to where guys on the offensive line are finally not starting. They're not in that core rotation until they're three, three years out of high school unless they're absolutely that good. And when was the last time Florida State was there to where, you know, you sign a blue chip offensive lineman and you're expecting him to really play when he's three years out of high school, when he's actually been on campus. He's got two years. He's two years of learning and, and getting better and all of that and then steps in his third year out of high school. When was the last time that Florida State offensively on the offensive line had that kind of situation? I mean, you start going back. That was not the case. I mean, obviously not the case through 2017. Go back to 2016. No. In 2013. No, you had, you know, a bunch of guys that were second and third year there. But that was that was maybe 2013, 2014. But that was an anomaly there because it hadn't been the case up until then since probably 2002. Maybe 03. It's been 20 years since Florida State had this kind of depth on the offensive line. I mean, you go back to what, what you're talking about in those offensive lines. You're talking about Milford Brown, Antoine Marambo, Todd Williams, Ray Willis, Alex Barron. That group was the last time Florida State had this kind of, this kind of depth where the older guys were just going to play. And you still had younger guys. So I would say when those guys were younger, when Ray Willis and, and, and Alex Barron were were young guys. So that'd be a 0102 was the last time Florida State had this kind of situation in the offensive line where where the depth chart was this healthy. It's been 20 years. Over 20 years. <laughs> That's wild. Now, the key is you've got to keep those guys competing and healthy. And that's where getting a lot of blowouts really helps. You want to get Julian Armella and Jalen Early and and Quayshon Sapp and Andre Otto and 
uh, Thomas Schrader and Kanaya Charlton and, you know, Bryson Estes and Daughtry Richardson and Lucas Simmons. You want to get those guys reps without them being in the core rotation. You want them getting, you know, 50, 75, 100 reps in their, in, in the season in low stakes situations that give them the, the adrenaline rush of playing and, and blocking for touchdowns and that sort of thing without them having to be thrown into the fire for 500, 600, 800 snaps where their bodies start to break down at this level. And I think Julian Armella is a guy that in 2024, you're talking about a guy that could be a, a candidate for all ACC recognition in his first year as a, as a core player. But that's what you want. Now, again, the key is you've got to get these guys to buy into, look, it's better for you and for your NFL future if you do not play in year one and year two extensively. All that tread on your tires before you've built up the armor that you need to have physically and also that you're mentally ready technique-wise so that you don't get yourself hurt. All that stuff is there. Now you play. That's what you have to sell to these kids. And it's true. That's the thing. Guys who play early get hurt more often than not. So you don't want to play these guys too early. The guys who don't get hurt early when they play early are guys who are just, you know, the absolute freaks of the freaks. They're really rare. It's your Evan Neals that, you know, can walk in and play day one and not not get hurt. The guys who are just, they're men among boys, even at the college level at 18, 19 years old. And those guys are just not, they're, they're not common. I mean, there's one or two of those guys every couple of years. And if you can avoid having your guys that are not Evan Neal come in and play day one, you're doing them a service. And this is what I've said for a couple of years is if I had, if I were a dad and I had a five-star offensive line prospect and I was shopping around and looking at recruiting and all of this, where do I want my kid to play? I would want him to go somewhere where number one, I trusted the offensive line coach to really know what he was doing, but number and the program in general to be set in that sense. So that if the, if the offensive line coach went somewhere else, I knew that, that whoever the head coach was would be able to, to slot somebody in and, and they'd be in good shape. But number two, I would want him to go to a program where he did not have to play day one. That, that would be the, the, the biggest thing I'd be looking at. I want to I send my kid to where he's going to have a chance to have a year or two to put on the armor, to get developed, to make sure that, that he is in every position to be able to make sure that three, four years out of college, he can get two years of, of experience in, in, in college, and then all of a sudden he's going to the NFL with only a year or two of starting experience, but without all that mileage and, and without all that likelihood of getting hurt. That's what I would want to, I'd want to see. And that's what you're hoping for for Julian Armella this year. And frankly, at this point, Armella is not as good as Bless Harris, Robert Scott, Darius Washington, or Jeremiah Byers at offensive tackle. He's not. I watched him in the spring game. He's not as good as any of those four. So I would have any of those four on the field at offensive tackle before I'd have Armella on, uh, on the field, especially since you've got depth on the interior at, 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 at guard. You, you slide one of those guys out and you slot one of the other guys in at guard before you put Armella on the field at tackle. He's just not quite ready. 
That doesn't mean he's not going to be really good. That just means he's not quite ready. I also continue to think that long term, Armella is probably best moving from left tackle. You know, I think Lucas Simmons, if he grows, you know, quickly, if he develops quickly, might be might end up taking that left tackle spot first. But again, he's miles away in terms of of getting the armor and and, and filling out what what he needs to do physically to be there. But again, Armel is a guy that can play four positions in the offensive line. And I think what you do with him next year is in a couple of those places, there there might be two spots that are open with guys who've gone pro, two guys, uh, two starting spots. And you figure out, okay, Armel is, he might be one of your best five next year. Pretty good likelihood he's one of your best five next year. And you just figure out where he slots in as one of your best five to make sure the other four are your best four around him. That's what you do. So I think that's what's going on. Now, next question. Can this offensive line be the best in the ACC and in the top 20 in the nation? (laughs) Well, this would be a quicker answer. I think not only can it be the best in the ACC, I think it will be the best in the ACC. I I think it would take a significant injury, uh, a rash of injuries for them not to be the best offensive line in the ACC. I think they're the best offensive line in the ACC by a good margin. And I think it's a top five, not top 20, but a top five unit in the nation. I start looking around the country and I go, okay, who has the best offensive line groups in in terms of not just starting units, but, but overall depth, you know, who would, who would Florida state trade with and, and be better off. And there's, that's a very, very short list. And even with those, with some of those teams that you might put in front of them, it's close enough that you probably just call it a wash. I think Georgia is probably the best offensive line in the country this year. They, um, you know, I think they, they, you, you think about Amarius Mims would start at Florida state this year and he's going to be, he's finally going to be starting slotting in as a starter at, at, at Georgia. He was a backup last year. So that kind of tells you where you're at. So Georgia, I would say would be number one. Aside from that, I mean, I think Texas, Alabama probably have better overall groups than Florida State, but I think Florida State is more depth than Texas. LSU is pretty much a wash with Florida State. Notre Dame, you probably put right in there. So so you got, like I said, Georgia, say Georgia, Notre Dame, Texas, Alabama, LSU, and Florida State. That's probably your top six offensive lines in the country. You, others might put Michigan up there. I mean, they they won the Joe Moore Award for the best offensive line in the, in the country the last two years, but they are they, they've lost a couple players as well so um you know they're they're I, I like florida state's group overall a little better than 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 michigan's so i think i think florida state is comfortably in the top say seven maybe six five even four offensive lines in the country and depending on how the year goes and you know health and all of that could be you know toward the top of that top five six in the country i th- i think it's an outstanding group. It should be a, let's say top six unit in the country. This, you know, this year and the depth is part of that. They've got a bunch of bodies behind them where you feel like, you know, if one guy goes down for a game or two, you can slot another guy in and, and, and be really, really good, which is different from last year. 
Now, you hope nobody goes down. If, the, if this group finishes the year with all five starters and, you know, with no, no significant injuries from the offensive line, then they may be the best offensive line in the country. But it would take, you know, obviously a healthy year for that. And that's that's pretty rare. I mean, 2013 is not not a common situation. But I think you can, you account for starters in depth, top five, six offensive line unit in the country. And again, it's been a long time since Florida State was there. I mean, I don't think 20, I don't think the 2013 offensive line was much better than that relative to the rest of the country. And you go, I think you got to, you know, basically it's 2013. And then you got to go back to like 2002 or 2003 for Florida state to be there. And they were only there for a year or two there. So, I mean, that's, this is, this is not, this is rarefied air for where Florida state should be as a, as an offensive line unit this year. All right. Next question. Did you like Brock Glenn coming out of high school better than AJ Duffy coming out of high school? I liked Duffy's potential better coming out. I I felt like he was a higher ceiling player, Uh, but the gap between the ceiling and the floor for Duffy was bigger uh, because there's just more guesswork with all COVID era prospects. I mean, I think that's the situation there where when you have, when you just don't have as much information because guys just not playing a full season, things like that, you just don't have as much data. You don't have as much film, that sort of thing. So, and I felt like Duffy had as high a ceiling coming out as almost anybody in his class. I really liked his potential. I still like his potential. Uh, But again, the gap between the ceiling and the floor bigger for him than for Glenn, who I think was a, it's a narrower, you know, sort of confidence band uh, situation, narrow confidence, confidence interval in terms of what you're getting with him. Uh, but I, I thought, I, I think if I'd had a choice between the two of them and I felt comfortable about the other guys on my roster, I'd have probably taken Duffy over Glenn coming out of high school if they were in the same class. But if I felt a little bit less comfortable about the guys on my roster, then, you know, I think Glenn is giving you a, a higher floor. So you probably, you probably take him. Uh, now, Glenn looked better than I expected him to in his first spring. And that's the thing, you, you know, even even evaluating coming straight out of high school, that may, you know, you're, you're still looking at how quickly a guy adjusts to the college level and adjusts to all the other things that come with being in college as well. And, you know, if I'm looking at taking at making a choice between those two guys each after their first spring, I think Glenn was further ahead after his first spring than, than Duffy was after his first spring. Now, does that mean that Glenn is going to end up beating out Duffy in, in the long haul? Not really, because you just never know when, when guys are actually going to make the the leap and when the light bulb is full, fully going to go on. And, and, you know, if that happens for, for one of them before the other, then, you know, that's that, but you just don't know. Uh, but I think that's where they are. And I think overall they're in a similar tier coming out of their first spring uh, but again, I think Glenn was a little ahead of where Duffy was coming out of his first spring, uh, though Duffy is, I think, ahead of things right now. Next question is related to that. If you were a betting man, from what you know right now, who do you think is the starting quarterback next year in 2024? And do you think Florida State will pursue a transfer for that? Well, that's a that's another really interesting question. Um, I think if I were a betting man right now, I would actually, I would bet on Tate Rodemaker to be the starting quarterback in 2024. I think he made 
enough strides last year and then looking from last year to this year in terms of what he looked like, the difference in uh, spring practice, I think I think he's enough ahead of the other two that he he's going to go into into next spring with the with the advantage. And and again, he's got enough tools to win with. This is one of those things that's kind of been interesting with Florida State in recent years because, you know, three years ago, Jordan Travis was a good football player, but he wasn't really a quarterback yet. Then two years ago, he was starting to get there. Last year, he was one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And this year, he should be even further ahead. They've been developing quarterbacks at Florida State. Two years ago, Tate Rodemaker was not a guy I was comfortable with having on the field. Last year, beginning of the year, he was still kind of in the same situation. And then he, he proved me wrong on a couple appearances and started to get comfortable. You could see the game start to slow down for him a little bit. And then this year, he's coming in and he's made more strides. So... You know, if you're looking at the development aspect of the quarterback position at Florida State, you know, there have been other places where, you know, you, you recruit a Quinn, uh, a Quinn Ears and, you know, you just put him on the field and, you know, kind of let him let him grow because, you know, he's that dude. That's one way of doing it. Another way, though, is, the, you know, kind of the old school way of you have a guy on campus for three years and then by the time he starts as a as a junior, redshirt junior, he's he's actually a good player. I mean, that's the old traditional Florida State way. And that might be what we're headed toward. Because if Rodemaker ends up being the starter next year, then maybe you have Duffy and then Glenn or, you know, being being those guys after that. Of course, that all may change because the guy you've got in the 2024 recruiting class, I think he's the he he's he's the future for the program. I think there's there's a lot of reason to think that uh Luke Cromenhook is a guy that can come in and, and and compete immediately. So, you know, it's possible that Rodemaker goes out there and starts a year and then Cromenhook becomes the next guy and, you know, jumps over both Duffy and Glenn. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it takes a year or two. And again, what you're pitching at these guys is look at the development. Look at how much better you get just being in our program. That That's kind of what you have to sell. But the hard part about this is in the transfer era, the transfer portal era, if a young guy doesn't start right away, let's say a young guy's not starting by year two, he's transferring out. So, you know, if A.J. Duffy doesn't start next year, do you suddenly need to bring in a, an extra an extra body, just have three on campus? Four on campus? you got to have four quarterbacks, in my opinion. So that's where the numbers get tricky. You know, if, if A.J. Duffy and, and Brock Glenn both get beat out by, you know, Luke Cromenhoek in, in year one, do both of them transfer out? Then you need to then you really need to backfill. Or, you know, if Duffy wins the job when Croman Hook steps on campus and is, you know, slated to be the starter for two years, I mean, do you lose Glenn and Crum? I mean, this is this is the sort of thing that 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 would have me pulling out what, you know, little hair I keep on my scalp uh if I were currently coaching in the in 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 college because the the quarterback recruiting quarterbacks and the the your quarterback room your quarterback roster more than anything else in college football will determine the floor of your program and it also determines it sort of sets your ceiling and your floor you, you if you don't have a good quarterback room you can't win 
And if guys are just going to transfer all the time there, you, the, the whole process of recruiting that room is just so hard now because all of the, all of the contingencies are there. Like, okay, well, you know, you recruit a Drake may and all of a sudden you lose the guy ahead of him. And now you've got one guy on your roster who looks like he might be ready to go. I mean, that's where UNC is, is going next year. You got Drake may, and then you got a backup who's, you know, he was a, he was a good recruit coming in, but you know, he's, he's a red shirt freshman who, and he's the only guy you got really behind Drake may. You don't have three or four quarterbacks you feel comfortable, comfortable with. Now you say, okay, well, you know, that's the one position where only one guy plays. That's great, but you got to have a little depth. And what about next year? So, yeah, the quarterback recruiting in the transfer portal era is a nightmare. And this is one of the reasons why I think you've got to make sure those guys are taken care of off the field regardless. All right. Next question. Do you think Winston Wright starts at slot receiver this year? Well, this is a trick question in some sense. Or I'll, I'll just say it's a trick answer. So, yes, I do think he's likely to be the starter at slot wide receiver for Florida state this year. But, and here's where the trick part of the question comes in. I see Florida state as a 12 personnel base, one back two tight ends. So the real starter at slot at that position is I think Jaheim bell. So I think right now the skill position starters for Florida state, are Johnny Wilson, Jaheim Bell. I think Keon Coleman, the, the transfer, is going to be the other. And then most likely Kyle Morlock as that as that fourth starter or Marquiston Douglas as that fourth starter. And then, of course, Trey Benson. But I think that's that's your situation. Now, when they go 11 personnel, I think the, the next guy out there, you go Johnny Wilson, Jaheim Bell, Keon Coleman, and then Winston Wright. I think I think you'll see a decent amount of that, but I I think the base package is going to be big. I think Jaheim Bell, and then Morlock or Douglas, or they're that package is going to be on the field a plurality of the time this year compared to eleven or ten personnel. But they go eleven personnel, and I think Winston Wright's the next one out there. But I think you know you you look at the receiver room this year with Keon Coleman added. And it's pretty healthy now. I think your core receiver rotation basically is Johnny Wilson and Keon Coleman at the top. Then Winston Wright, Darian Williamson, and Kentron Poitier as the as the next three. So that's your five. And then Ja'Kai Douglas and Deuce Span as your six, seven. And I think all seven of those guys are going to play pretty significant amount, a, a pretty significant number of snaps. Those are the guys you have to keep happy. Those are the guys that have some experience. And that allows you to kind of work Hakeem Williams, Vandravius Jacobs, Darren Lawrence, and Destin Hill into the field in, into the into the rotation more once the game is out of reach. But I think, you know, Wilson, Coleman, Wright, Poitier, and Williamson in particular, that five is 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 gonna be the core five. And again, that's Johnny Wilson, Winston Wright, Keon Coleman, Poitier, and Williamson. 
I think there's your core five. Now, maybe Deuce Span works in to make that a core six. Maybe Ja'Kai Douglas, somewhere in there. But I think those are your core wide receivers in terms of actual receivers. But in terms of who's actually starting and who's actually on the field, I think you're only going to have two wide receivers on the field a good bit of the time this year. Just because I think they're going to go big. And with Keon Coleman on this roster, you can go freaking big. You go Johnny Wilson at 6'6 plus, 230 plus at one wide receiver. Jaheim Bell at 235 or 240, whatever he's at, at 6'3. And then Keon Coleman at 6'4, 215, 220. And then you add, let's say, Morlock or Douglas at, you know, 6'6 and, you know, 240 plus. That is a big lineup. You better be able to you better be able to line up in the box and bust heads. And you better be able to cover big wide receivers on the outside, or you're gonna have problems against Florida State this year. But I think that's what you're gonna get. So next. Uh, next question. Are Hakeem Williams and Vendravius Jacobs both slot receivers in Florida State's system? Um, no. Uh, Jacobs, I think, is mostly a slot. I think he winds up being, you know, slotting it at that three position, which is that slot receiver that moves around a little bit. He could also play some of the two position, which is where, uh, which is that, that what was traditionally called a flanker or the Z. Uh, he could play the two. Uh, some as well, but I think long term, I think Jacobs slots in as that as that three slot receiver, and I think Destin Hill ends up being more of a two, uh, you know, playing the two position. And, and again, the two position is where Pokey Pokey uh, was last year. Uh, then you got the split end, which is the nine position that that big wide receiver position, more the boundary lines up on the boundary thing, and I think that's really where Hakeem Williams is likely to to end up, especially with Destin Hill on the roster, uh, and I think Hill is a more natural too. Normally, that nine position is your bigger body, vertical threat, you know, sort of your your big dude. Uh, again, Johnny Wilson's there. Keon Coleman would be that, you know, with, when when Wilson's not on the field. Coleman will probably move to that spot and then you'll put Williamson or someone else in at the, at the two. But uh, I think Hakeem Williams, he could play either the nine or the two. And I think again, those get interchanged to some degree in this offense, but he's more of an outside wide receiver who, you know, you can put him in, you can put him inside at the slot in certain situations if you want, but I think he's more of an outside receiver in this position. I think long-term I see him more at the nine spot. All right. All that brings us up to this this question, and I and, you know can't remember who asked this question, but put me on the spot here. Post spring, what is your win loss record projection for Florida State's regular season right now? You can change your prediction before the season. I just want to know what it is right now. <laughs> Man, I hate doing this stuff this early, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I was asked, so I'm going to do it. Uh, right now, I think Florida State goes like I, I've got Florida State going twelve and one with an ACC title. I think Florida State is the most complete team on their schedule, and I think the gap between FSU and most of the teams on the schedule is sufficient to expect them to win those games even without their A game every week. So, you know, we've talked about this for years on this show. If you want to win 11, 12 games, in, in you know ten. 
double digits. You just want to win 10 plus games. You have to be a lot better than most of the teams on your schedule. You know, that's that's the that's the 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 difficulty. You can't just be 60%, 60 a bunch of 60-40 games. If you play 10 games where you are the better team, you're favored in 10 games. You're still statistically unlikely to win all 10 games in most cases. In order to be favored to win all 10 games, you have to be 90 plus percent odds. You have to be over 90% odds to win each individual game to expect to win 10 games. If you if you're playing 10 games, again, this is basic odds. If you're playing 10 games and you are a 60-40 favorite in all 10, you're expected to lose four. So the real trick to winning, you know, 10, 11, 12 games in a regular season, at least with some consistent, on some consistent basis, because you're going to have some upticks where, you know, just like if you flip a coin 10 times, you might have nine heads come up out of 10, you know, in some, you know, random streak of luck. It just happens. So, I mean, that, that can happen. You get a team that's only 60-40 favored in 10 games, and they win nine of them. And it's not because they were any better. It's just they, the ball bounced their way in those games. And there's, a vari- there's variance in, 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 in these sorts of things. But if you want to, on a consistent basis, win 9-10 games out of your 10, you need to be that much better than the teams you're playing. You need to be a lot better. So you look down the list. Okay, where does Florida State fit? How many teams do I do I see as within say twenty five percent odds of beating Florida State this year? This Florida State team against who they're who they're playing? Southern Miss, no. Boston College, no. Virginia Tech, no. Syracuse, no. Duke, no. Wake Forest, maybe, but they're right on that edge. Pitt, maybe. Miami, I think they're on the edge. North Alabama, no. Florida, yes. So basically, you got LSU, Clemson, Florida. Those three are are games that are within that say thirty percent. You know, FSU favored by favored less than a seventy percent chance of winning that game. LSU is basically a coin flip. I think FSU should be favored at Clemson. Looking at the two rosters, I think FSU's got a better, has the better overall team. And by enough that I think even at Clemson, you favor them. But that's like 55-45 maybe. So you figure on, a, on, a, on one of those games being a loss. If Florida State gets through month one undefeated, they may, they may run the table. Because once you get out of that, Significant favorites, you know, they're they're twenty point favorites at Virginia Tech, twenty point they're twenty eight point favorites or so against Syracuse, probably twenty four, twenty eight point favorites against Duke, twenty point favorites at Wake Forest, twenty point favorites at Pitt, then Miami. That's a rivalry game, but you know, who knows what Miami's going to be this year, but let's just say that's another game you can lose. Cause again, Miami's got a lot of talent on that roster. You just don't know what they're going to look like this year, but let's say that's another 
70-30 game or, you know, 65-35, something like that. But, you know, you take that and then North Alabama, that's a win. And then Florida. So you'd basically split the Miami and the Florida games. And you're favored in both of those. So essentially you got a coin flip in, in LSU. Maybe, you know, if you want to be generous and give, uh, if, if you want to be conservative, not generous, you want to be conservative and say both LSU and Clemson are coin flips in that first month. And then both Miami and Florida are, you're favored in both of those, but you know, those are teams that can beat you. Essentially that's your, that, that's what you're looking at. So you say one loss in the, in that first month, likely. And then, you know, maybe a half loss likelihood in the Miami, Florida situation. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt with a veteran team that has managed to handle those, both of those programs in, in the last couple of years. You know, I, I'm going to give them, I'm going to give them the edge there. So that, that gives me one loss in the regular season going into the ACC championship game. And then I think, you know, going into that ACC championship game with a chance to go to the playoff, I think Mike Norvell's a really good big game coach. And I think you, you've got decent likelihood. But I think this is a, you know, 11 or 10, 11 or 12 win team right now in the AC, in, 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 in this uh, 2023 season. And they've got a decent shot of being a playoff team. Like I said, I think they're the most complete team on their schedule. And I think the gap between them and everybody on their schedule, not named LSU, Clemson, Miami, or Florida, is sufficient that you expect them to run the t- It will be a significant upset if they get beat by anybody not named LSU, Clemson, Miami, or Florida. That's what you have to have. That's where you have to be if you're going to be a legitimate playoff contender. You have to go into the season feeling like there's really a four, you know, three or four game schedule. And then you just have to take care of business in those games. And then, you know, you got to double tap the, the the upset bids when when those come in. But the key to the to having that edge in, in all the rest of those games is when you get to the to those games other than LSU, Clemson, Miami and Florida. If you've got a lot of depth. You know, let's say you're a little nicked up here or there last year being nicked up cost in the Wake Forest game. I mean, it's just the truth. If you have a little bit more depth, you win that game with your C game. And that's where you have to be. And I think this is a Florida State game that can, I think they'll be able to beat a Syracuse with their C game. I think they'll be able to beat a Wake Forest with their B game. And that's where you have to be. Now, I think you have to have your A game to beat LSU. I think you have to have your A game probably to beat Clemson. Although I, I think Clemson's, going to be interesting this year just because I'm not sure what they have in terms of playmakers on that team, really. And if you can control the line of scrimmage in that game and force them to beat you downfield with their playmakers, with with wide receivers and all of that, I don't think they have what they've had in in the past. So, you know, I I think Florida State should be favored, you know, should be a, a decent, you know, edge against Clemson, Miami, and Florida next year which then gives you your 50-50 shot against LSU. So you beat LSU in game one, and I think you've got a really, really good shot of being a one-loss type team going into the ACC championship game and being in position to make the playoff. That's where I, that's where I project him now. I don't think that's likely to change between now and the beginning of uh, 
of the of the football season, but that's where I think things are. I'll I'll go through this in more detail on a on the season preview show, but but that's that's kind of where my thoughts are right now. We'll go ahead and wrap the show right there. Still still more to get through in the next one, but uh, this is already pushing on the longer side. So as always, this has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, ShenRealEstate.com in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach and Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast shop at UnconqueredPodcast.com, which features stickers, magnets, and other seminal gear. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. I'm especially grateful to those above the dynasty level, that is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Jonathan Kennedy, Lee Caswell, Travis Smith, Tyler Kashishki, Dave Blair, and Bert Bertoldi. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this.